In the name of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've been home in recent months with my father looking through um, tons of photos and sharing them on email and my brothers and I came across a photo of maybe six or seven years old and I'm at my birthday party with my friends and we're taking the double-decker Burger King bus to Burger King for lunch where we met none other than the king himself dressed up in these pictures and it made me laugh to imagine that you know as kids there was a sense you're in touch with celebrity. I mean, this isn't a step or two, maybe too far from the president, you know, or, or some great athlete or whatever you wanted to imagine. But I can remember this sense of that contact, you know, that somehow I've been in touch with royalty. It's a human instinct. I think we're attracted to it. Many of you will know, I don't know if it's um, what cable Netflix or company it is, but this British production, The Crown, that's so popular and people are streaming. Fascinated by rule, by authorities, by good ones, by bad ones, by elections. It's human nature. So today we um, recognize and celebrate the Feast of the Ascension. Um, it is a holiday, a feast that's lost very easily between Easter and next week, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. This is the moment that Jesus has raised into his kingship, and we must not lose it. It is the last Sunday of Easter. So I'll move us through our readings today. If you have your Bible, it's the end, uh, the beginning of Acts 1, 1 through 11. It's substituted for the Old Testament reading. The end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, the ascension scene in the final verses. Psalm 47, the ascension of the Lord, of Yahweh. And then Ephesians 1.15 and following is that prayer of Paul, his first of two prayers in Ephesians for the church to enter in, um, to know what has been given to us in Christ's ascension. Well, um, the Gospels want us to fixate on this moment. In Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, you'll see this scene. The disciples have been with Jesus and he's gone up into the clouds. And then two men appear out of nowhere, and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there staring at the sky? I think Luke is having a bit of fun with us. What would you do if this guy just got kind of beamed up into the sky? Anyone would look up. I think it's Luke's humorous way of saying they're transfixed by something absolutely extraordinary. But now he says, go to Galilee, because you're going to find out what that means. And then it unfolds into the meaning and the power of the ascension. And I'm going to lay that out briefly, just with three points today, with joy, with hope, and with power. They um, all come up in our passage today, so that's why I combine them. But they show up, very interestingly, in several passages in the New Testament. At the end of morning prayer, one of the dismissal passages we have says, May the God of all hope give you all joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the ascension of God has transformed his church into a people of hope and joy and power. So we begin with joy. When those disciples left the two men and began to head to Jerusalem to meet him, it says they left with exceedingly great joy. Now, this is a Mark will describe people like that. They were exceedingly joyful. And I think what you have to pause, we have to pause and recognize, is that is 
There's no other way to imagine that than physical, visible, audible joy, right? It doesn't make any sense to say, and they sat down in a quiet time and were exceedingly joyful. You've got to imagine jumping or dancing and singing and voices and clapping. I mean, joy is not a still thing. And it's commanded for the church, it's prayed for the church to be a people of great joy. And so I want, first of all, to recognize the way that joy is a decisive virtue, a practice or a habit. Uh, Archbishop Rowan Williams says, you know, joy is not happiness. It's not stirring up the emotion that may be there. It's not um, uh, an it's okay kind of mood of shrugging of the shoulders. Joy is a definitive um, effusive, overflowing of the recognition of God's goodness and his reign and his power. It, it begins with kind of an intellectual recognition. He is king. And so we put ourselves into the habit of rejoicing, not simply waiting for it to happen. It is hard. This is why Paul prays for it. But it is a duty. It's a responsibility of the church. Rejoice always, Paul says to the Philippians. Be joyful. And I want just to notice how definitive it is that they, um, in, in this habit, in this decisive way of being joyful, it is a way of um, thinking about the past and memory. I mean, um, if you imagine, they're not on their way to Jerusalem saying, we're going to get those Jews and those Romans. I mean, one natural response for us is revenge. And the king is on the throne and we're going to burn down Rome or Jerusalem or the temple. Right? There's no revenge. Joy is decisive in the way it remembers the past. I've talked about this a few times since Easter. Christianity, the resurrection, has this power, this move for us to transform the way we think about the past, about regrets, about losses, about suffering. And joy is a decision to say, God reigns. I will focus on that which has been done and that place from which he reigns. He's king. And it's also decisive in the sense that it's physical, as I said, with the disciples. It's very, very difficult to rejoice on your own, or difficult. It's difficult to rejoice on your own, if not impossible, in silence. It ought to be physical and vocal. And I say this as a confession. I was in church. We have the bishop here, Bishop Steve Brelev, a couple of weeks ago. And, and the Lamb is overcome, this extraordinary Easter hymn. And, and the bishop and I are clapping, and a couple of people, and and it's almost like there's this rule in, in Anglicanism or some parts of Anglicanism or in white Christianity. Like, I can't show my religion too much. You know, this thing's got to be guarded. Like, I can't say, Alleluia. I can't say, Amen. And if you do that in church, I will thank you personally. If you clap well and in sync, I will thank you. There's just extraordinary research now that our emotions, our attitudes, very much follow the habits and moods and, and behaviors of our body. When you clap and when you sing and when you join your voice with another person, there is a movement within us that is something we can call joy. It requires determination. It requires gathering. Joy. Joy, second, is connected to hope. The God of hope. Um, uh, I've laid out for you, wait for the promise of the Father, the promise that is given for you. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this in our prayer. He says that he has uh, wants us to know the hope to which he has called us and the riches, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance 
in the saints. I pray for you that you would know hope, that you would have your eyes looking for the inheritance, for the goodness, for the finality of the reign of God in this world forever. That's a habit as much as joy is to look forward. It's also a habit like joy, a decision in time, not to be defined by the present moment and what I see going on in culture or in the world, in division and strife and war and conflict. To be hopeful is to say, I can see it another way. I hope is such a labor to set our eyes on something, not on resentment, not on fear, not on despair which are sins against time. They're sins against the truth of the future. To hope is to be decisive. And hope then, this is what's really important about hope. Hope is the thing that puts love to work. I've been trying to find the way to say that really well in sermons over the last years. I really thought about that and discovered it. And you can kind of hear it in the beginning of Colossians 1, 5. Paul tells the Colossians, look, I'm thankful for your faith. And for the love you show for the saints because of the hope that is in you. You see, if I could illustrate this, you know, America's in this waking up moment of social justice, wanting to amend for wrongs. And you don't attempt justice in the public sphere or in the world unless you have hope. Unless you think tomorrow could be better than today, that our education, that our incarceration system, that our um, cities could be better than they are. Hope is the sense that something is on the horizon. And so it puts love, it puts people to work. But the distinctive thing about Christianity and where it differs from secular culture is that our hope is not in this world. It's not in our governments above all. It is in the king, in his definitive reign. And the fact that with that reign, I can be empowered here because the secular world can get discouraged by what doesn't happen day to day in their efforts at justice. But we don't because we know the final end. You see how absolutely decisive that is for love and good work in the world. If I'm watching the culture and the progress or the regress the church is making or the government is making or the world is making, I am bound to despair. But if my hope is not in what we see but what we do not see in Romans 8.24, that I'm constantly pulled forward in love. Hope drives me. Jesus' reign on high is a decisive way of, of, of um, reducing human governments and their systems to irrelevance. They are temporary. We do not hope in them. Jesus is not identified with Africa or America or Israel or Japan or India. He has the nations bowing to him. That's the core of joy and hope. These secular things, that's what secular means, these temporary institutions are fading under the reign of Christ and our hope is set beyond them while we work within them to bring love and God's news and God's justice. Joy moves us with hope and it's tied to power. The power of God working in us. I pray that, I said that at the beginning that that God of hope would fill us with joy and peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the gift we get at Pentecost a week from now, is that spirit that's poured out as a gift on us by Christ fills us with power. For what? To be hopeful, to do good, 
in the world. If we jump forward into Ephesians chapter 4, Paul goes from these prayers in this introduction to call his church in Ephesus to work. And he says there, the spirit that raised Jesus, the ascension spirit, has poured out power on you and gifted you as apostles, some as teachers, some as preachers, some as ministers. That power that Jesus has when he reigns now in the ascension is poured into us in this world, in this moment. You, friends, are empowered with a gift made from all eternity for this world, for our church. Reflect on that. We should ask ourselves this question. What use of that power have I harnessed, have I developed, have I habituated and poured into my church? What is that gift? I mean, this is the ascension's moment because God begins to mark them out in the church, individually, with gifts, filled with overflowing power for work in the world. America's in a condition, often, the church probably would become consumerist. I don't like that church because it doesn't do it for me. The music doesn't do it for me. The pastor's sermons aren't good enough. They're too long. And it's a totally upside-down view of the church. The church is that source of power in the world. It is us empowered to do work. We're not waiting as consumers for the church to do something. We are empowered to do things for one another. There is in this prayer, Teresa of Avila, this wonderful reflection on this thought. God of love, help us to remember that Christ has no body now on earth but ours, no hands but ours, no feet but ours. When he ascended on high and was raised, the final moment of that ascension is that that almighty and infinite power is with us as a church. And so the question we have as we move through Pentecost into a broken world, into a sad world, what will we do with the hope and the joy and the power that are given to us in Christ? I leave us with these words in Paul's second prayer in Ephesians, where he combines these terms again and leaves us in a prayer to end today. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, or sometimes um, infinitely beyond what we can ask or imagine, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church from generation to generation forever and ever. Amen.